There's a story out there that has to do with meatloaf. That's meatloaf the food, not the rock artist. Maybe you've heard it before at a leadership conference or work meeting, or seen it on your aunt's Facebook page. If you haven't, it goes something like this. A guy makes a meatloaf, or in Adventist circles, maybe it's a Worthington dinner roast, for his new wife, and she loves it. It's delicious, she says. But why did you cut off the ends before you put it in the oven? He goes, I don't know. That's just how my mom made it. So he's curious, and they call up mom and ask her, why do you cut off the ends of the dinner roast? And she says, well, that's how my mom made it. So they call up grandma and ask her, why do you cut off the ends of the dinner roast before you put it in the oven? And she says, I don't know why you do it. I always did it because it was the only way it would fit in the pan. Oftentimes, this story is told as some cautionary tale about tradition. But there's another way to look at it. Context matters. The context for the dinner roast with the cut-off edges was a pan that was too small. So what's the context for the Adventist church? Why do we do some of the things that we do? Is there a particular reason, for example, why we have church at 11 a.m.? Why are haystacks the universal Adventist food instead of something else, like mangoes? Why do we focus on health and particularly what we eat and what we drink so much? Why do we put so much emphasis on the idea that Jesus is coming back soon? I'm Nina Velado. And I'm Caleb Isley. This is How the Church Works a deep dive into the inner workings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and why you should care. In this episode, we explore the origins of the movement that would eventually become the Seventh-day Adventist Church and what that means for us today. In order to understand the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have to turn back the clock to 1800s rural America. God works in context. He raised up the Christian church in first century Palestine, not in Jamaica. Had he raised the church in Jamaica, the most healthful food would be mangoes. And you would hear about mangoes. You have to eat mangoes to go to heaven. (laughs) But Christianity arose in Palestine. And Adventism arose in the Northeast North America, which was rural. This is Pedrito Maynard-Reed, a professor of biblical studies and missiology and the assistant to the president for diversity and inclusion at Walla Walla University an Adventist university in Washington state. Pedrito grew up in Jamaica, and he's probably one of the most positive and upbeat people you'll ever meet. And you just need to read a book called The Good Old Days, They Were Terrible. The the school system was bad, the cities were bad, the streets were bad, the health system was bad, and you find that um, Adventists got into being pushing against culture, changing schools, changing health system, changing the social life, even while doing, having some other things that were very much like the American identity. You cannot but be part 
of the womb that gave you birth. And the womb that gave birth to the Seventh-day Adventist movement had a lot going on. The Industrial Revolution, which included the exploitation of workers, many of whom were women and children. The growth of cities, which were usually unsafe and unclean. Westward expansion into the dangerous frontier and at the expense of indigenous peoples. Farming and homesteading was a way of survival. Nat Turner's rebellion was only decades away. To really put things into perspective, in the year 1800, scientists hadn't discovered that bacteria causes illness. The Revolutionary War had ended only 17 years before. Aaron Burr wouldn't duel Alexander Hamilton to the death for four more years, and the Star-Spangled Banner didn't exist yet. The United States of America was new. This is the womb that Adventists came from. Our pattern of thinking, our system of government, our lifestyle, our general worldview was 19th century American and mostly a frontier type of American. For example, we're very individualistic. We're very capitalistic. Uh, we emphasize manual skills. We're very anti-city. We stressed frugality. We stressed simplicity. We defined goals in terms of numbers and institutions and material prosperity. Why are we worshiping at 11 o'clock on Sabbath morning? For Adventists, they were a farming community. They had to get up and milk the cows and feed the chickens and take care of the farm duties before they went to church. And people are making a big deal of, well, you better worship at 11 o'clock and 11 o'clock is the divine hour. Like God only worships at 11 o'clock. He comes down. No, it's cultural. Once you start to see the fingerprints of 1800s America on the church today, you can't help but see them in a lot of places. This American identity influenced so much about how we do things, including the way we're organized, our structures, our institutions, and our lifestyle practices. You know, our system of government. When, when we decided we're going to start off, what, what are we going to, who are we going to make the head of the church or the head of the group of churches? Oh, yeah, let's call him a prime minister. No, we, we, we're not British, you know, we're not Jamaican. We're going to call him a president because that's the head of the country is a president. And who are the assistants there, the directors of departments of education and youth and uh, all of that? They're going to be secretaries. And they just did what the culture did. We just got involved in that the lifestyle. We dressed like, not like Jesus. I didn't see James White going around with a robe. <laughs> no, we dressed like how Americans dressed at the time. And some of people didn't even want to move. When the dresses started to come up, the Adventists didn't want to bring their dresses up to their ankle. Ellen White had to form a dress and give it to the people and says, hey, your dresses are sweeping the streets with all the dung from the donkeys. That is not healthy. And they were pushing back and saying, well, that, that dress you have is immodest. 
It, you can see your ankle. How immodest. And Helen White says, come on. What is more horrible is that you are dressing like a sweep streeter on the streets of New York. So we pushed against it, even though we wanted to be part of it. And we could go on and on with all of these things that we were, we never even stopped to think. And what is sad is that in many instances, some of those things have now become principles. They were just cultural in the 19th century. So in many ways, Adventism was heavily influenced by the American culture of the 1800s. But the Adventist message wasn't confined to that context. Adventism is much bigger than that, which is why it's grown into a global church with many of its own cultural contexts. But this backdrop of America's growing pains was fertile soil for the Adventist message to grow from. It was both a product of the American identity and a reaction against it. We were frontiers people because America, part of America was very frontier. You know, they were part of America, of course, who um, were believed in the status quo, and they just stayed where they are. They liked New York, they liked Chicago, they liked, you know, um, New England, and they just stayed there, status quo people. Adventism was never a status quo religion. But we're jumping ahead a little bit. We're talking about Adventism. But the Seventh-day Adventist Church wasn't even officially organized until 1863, before it had its own practices, culture, theology, publishing houses, schools, or even a name. It was a bunch of random people in the northeastern United States attending big tent revivals, also known as camp meetings, during what we now call the Second Great Awakening. Upon the blessed hope of the believers, What will happen to the saints at the second coming of Christ? The Second Great Awakening spread like wildfire through rural America in the 1790s through the 1840s. A lot of the issues emphasized during the Second Great Awakening will probably sound familiar to those immersed in Adventism today. There was a focus on spiritual revival, on evangelism and baptism, and on social and behavioral reforms, such as dress, health, and family. There was a sense that America was spiritually dead, that it was morally corrupt, and that it needed to be informed that Jesus was returning very soon. There were many groups that sprung out of the Second Great Awakening, and with one of those groups is really where the Adventist church begins. The Millerites. I keep jumping to abolition, I'm sorry. It's really hard to talk about. I'm finding it's basically impossible to talk about Millerism without talking about abolition, which is why. This is Kevin Burton, and he knows a lot of stuff. He kind of talks like he drank two espressos, but he actually doesn't drink any coffee. He's currently an assistant professor of church history at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary and director of the Center for Adventist Research at Andrews University. And he's also finishing up his dissertation on the Millerites and the abolitionist movement. So the the Millerites start with a man named William Miller. He was a, a farmer and a Baptist, a Calvinist Baptist in upstate New York uh, in a place called Hampton. In 1831, in August, he starts to preach that Christ is going to return about the year 1843. 
And the Millerites are people that follow Miller. The one thing that unites them is that they are all willing to say that Christ is coming very, very soon, within just a few years, and he's coming personally. You'll be able to see him. He's going he's gonna to actually physically be present. They were a, a very diverse group of people. They shared this sort of impulse for revivalism. I mean, they are sort of in the, in the wake of the Second Great Awakening. Many Adventists today probably know a little bit about William Miller and the Millerites. Millerism wasn't its own denomination, at least not at first. It was something else. It was an ideology forming within other Christian denominations. They believed that Jesus was coming back soon, both visibly and personally. That idea continued to gain momentum, and eventually William Miller believed he had even calculated an approximate date of Jesus' return, based on passages from the two biblical books of Daniel and Revelation. That date was October 22, 1844. But even before Miller had a date, the Millerites were incredibly active. They had revivals, these big tent gatherings. In this revivalist way of thinking was also the idea of reform. That is, if Jesus was coming soon, they'd better get their acts together. So many Millerites were active in reform movements, temperance, anti-Masonry, and that's anti-Freemasonry, not anti-building stuff with stone, anti-dueling, etc. Kevin told us that some even viewed Millerism as the ultimate reform. This natural inclination toward reform also gave way to a theological stance that many Christians at the time would have found incredibly controversial. The abolition of slavery. According to Kevin, at the time only about 2% of evangelical Christians supported the abolitionist movement. But almost all of the Millerites supported the abolition of slavery. That's what the evangelical majority is about. Um, and the Millerites stand out very differently from the evangelical majority uh, when it comes to issues of politics and their views of, of society. And so um, even though they are, they are part of these churches, there are major differences. If you're willing to say that slavery is a sin, and of course that you're advocating that Christ is coming soon to judge, that means you have to repent of the sin of slavery if you want to be saved for eternity. The abolitionist movement and the Millerite movement were closely tied. We'll talk about this more in another episode. But right now, what you need to know is that for this and many other reasons, the Millerites were the odd ones out. In the early 1830s through the mid-1830s, I would say that most Millerites were tolerated in their churches fairly well, um, including William Miller. He's actually given a license to preach by the Baptist denomination and so in the early 1830s, and so that's actually quite affirming for him. And he's continuing to, to operate in, in church circles, and the Millerites generally are doing so, but tension starts to arise by the, by the late 1830s. That tension comes from the disagreement about abolition, but also from the idea that Jesus was coming soon. Evangelicals were largely gradualists. They believed that humans had a role in establishing God's kingdom on earth, but it was going to take a long time. And only after a thousand years of peace would Jesus return. To them, the idea that Jesus was coming soon, within a few years even, was offensive and heretical. 
they start to push back quite strongly by about 1837, 38. And uh, that will increase through the early 1840s. People that Millerites are actually leaving the churches. It is also true that sometimes the churches disfellowshipped the members before they had the chance to leave. And um, there are many cases where this is done over slavery as well as Adventism. As the date Millerites believed Jesus would return approached, the Millerite movement grew to include around 50,000 people. But that date, October 22nd, 1844, came and went, and Jesus didn't come back. This event is known as the Great Disappointment. As far as the disappointment is concerned, it was, I mean, this was a very tragic experience for the people who lived through it. I mean, the Millerites honestly believed that Christ was literally returning on October 22, 1844. At least the majority of them did. And they prepared for that. There were people who were, you know, trying to insist that you couldn't support slavery. There are some who, who actually liberate their slaves in preparation for the second coming. Um, more common ways, since most Millerites were not in, in slaveholding territory, are insisting that they may close down their stores, they may not harvest their crops, these kinds of things. However, I want to stress too that that has been overemphasized in our history too, because I think the majority of Millerites never stopped their business. I don't. I think the majority of Millerites actually did harvest their crops and all of that, even though they literally did uh, believe that Christ was coming on that day. But nevertheless, no matter what they're doing, they're preparing in some form or fashion, and it is heart-wrenching that they find out that Christ doesn't return. You know, there are some who talk about how they weep all night long. And the next day, they felt like hell opened up and, and the demons from hell were let loose upon them because of all the mockery that they got from all of the people that they thought were their friends. So, I mean, it was, it was a hor uh, horrific thing. After the Great Disappointment, the Millerites were facing something incredibly difficult, figuring out how to pick their lives back up and continue on. When October 22 passes and no one in Christ did not show, um, a lot of people left. And scholars have got it wrong when they basically say that Millerism died um, with the Great Disappointment. As far as I can tell, uh, about half of the Millerites left. Well, there are those who abandon Christianity, yes. Um, some become atheists and, and other forms of non-Christian. Probably the majority of those who uh, left Millerism just returned to their former churches. The remaining Millerites fragmented off into several groups, including the Church of God, the Shakers, and the Abrahamic Faith and even some utopian communal societies that called themselves communist. That's communist with a lowercase c. Because of their shared belief in the soon return of Jesus, or Advent, all of these groups can be referred to as Advent Christians, or Adventists. That's Adventist with a lowercase a. One of the smallest groups that grew out of Millerism was what we now know today as the Seventh-day Adventist Church, commonly referred to as Adventists, with a capital A. Another group that comes out uh, of this uh, Millerite movement um, are the group that become and eventually take the name Seventh-day Adventists. They believe that uh, the Millerites had the right day, October 22, 1844, but a wrong understanding as well. But Christ was supposed to come physically still, so that wasn't the part that was wrong. These early Adventists believed that they hadn't been totally wrong about the October 22, 1844 date. 
but that they had missed something. But what happens on that day is Christ enters the most holy place in heaven. And so that makes all the difference in the world. And so he's entering the second phase of his uh, heavenly atonement. And so that becomes us. The day after the great disappointment, a man named Hiram Edson and some fellow believers had been studying the Bible and wanted to share encouragement with others, even though Jesus had not come the previous day. As they walked across the field, Hiram had an epiphany about October 22nd, 1844. Maybe this date that William Miller had calculated wasn't about Jesus's return. Maybe it was about something else. And as Hiram Edson is walking across his cornfield, he has uh, an experience that uh, helps him to realize uh, something really pivotal. And he actually kind of sees uh, probably in his mind that uh, Christ is moving from uh, the holy place in heaven to the most holy place. And so he realizes, ha, yes, the sanctuary is not the earth or the churches, as Millerites tended to believe. It's actually in heaven. This might sound very familiar to people who are well-versed in the unique doctrines and beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is known as the sanctuary doctrine, and this belief was pivotal for early Adventists. Kevin tells us that Hiram wasn't the only person who came to this conclusion. There was another Adventist, at least one, unfortunately we don't know his name, in Canada, several hundred miles away, who comes to basically the, uh, the exact same conclusion, or as far as we can tell, the same conclusion. And that is that Christ is, the sanctuary is actually in heaven. But it's Hiram Edson, in particular, who is pivotal for the history of Seventh-day Adventism, because he will eventually join up with a captain, a sea captain named Joseph Bates. Joseph Bates, a rugged old sea captain, staunch abolitionist, and prominent leader and preacher in the Millerite movement, who had been advocating heavily for the Seventh-day Sabbath. Together, they held a conference, tying the ideas of the sanctuary and the Sabbath. Kevin describes these two ideas as the theological nucleus of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And by 1846, Hiram and Bates had connected with two other pioneers of the Adventist Church. Ellen White, a young writer who Adventists would later identify as a prophetic messenger, and James White, who would become the father of Adventism's culture of publishing. These four started to build up a community centered around these two ideas. Holding meetings on these doctrines, helping people understand them, basically like Bible studies, um, in various towns and locales, wherever they knew they were Millerites still holding on to the faith or potentially willing to come back. And so they start to slowly, slowly, slowly amass a following to where maybe by 1850 or so, you've got a couple hundred. At this point, the church didn't have any official organizational structure. It was a loose group of people spread across the American Northeast who had similar beliefs and would study the Bible together and discuss theology. It took almost 20 years after the Great Disappointment for the Seventh-day Adventist Church to officially organize. Nina, why is that? Well, this brings us to our final important context. Christian Connection, stylized with an X. Christian Connection was a loosely affiliated group of Christians, not quite a denomination, but they strictly held on to the ideas that the Bible should be their only creed and Christian behavior the only test of fellowship. 
This is something that was shared in theory by Baptists, Calvinists, and Methodists. But the Connectionists believed that in practice, these groups had additional requirements for specific belief and practice, and even felt that these denominations were apostate due to their additional requirements. The Connectionists believed that theological dialogue was more important than theological conformity. This also made the Connectionists suspicious of large institutional structures that did not allow for a dialogue and different beliefs. James White and Joseph Bates, before becoming leaders in the Millerite and Seventh-day Adventist movements, were Connectionists. Because of the Connectionist background of some Adventist leaders and the ostracization of the Millerites, many Adventists were skeptical of ecclesiastical formalization, that is, church structure and everything that comes with it. But the church we know now, not only does it have the remnants of our roots in the American frontier and the reform movements of the Second Great Awakening and Millerism, it's also highly organized. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Why did we go from being suspicious of large institutional structures to being the fifth largest Christian communion in the world? Next time on How the Church Works, we're going to talk about that. How the Church Works is hosted by Nina Velato and Kayla Beisley. And thank you to our guests this week, Pedrito Maynard-Reed and Kevin Burton. You can find bonus content and show notes for this episode on howthechurchworks.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Heather Moore. All episodes are edited and mixed by the multi-talented Nina Velato. Our logo design is by Brittany Colby, website and social media by Chelsea Ernina. Thank you to our tech and equipment expert, Stephen Hewson. The show is executive produced by Adam Finner, Heather Moore, Kayla Beisley, and Nina Velado. Special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. Have something to say? Email us at hello at howthechurchworks.com. 